Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Dalek 6388 Propcast. I am Gavin Rymill and I'm a 3D modeler who worked on the recent release of the animated version of The Evil of the Daleks. And this episode is an exclusive behind-the-scenes look at the research and technical work that a handful of us put into that production. Firstly, the fact that I am able to bring some specialist knowledge is a result of the joint research effort undertaken over many, many years with John Green. Hello, John. Hi. And next up, the researcher and archivist who helped me immensely in figuring out accurate sets and props for evil is Reese Williams. Hello, Reese. Hello, hello. And last but definitely not least, we are joined by Rob Ritchie, who is a 3D modeler, animator and compositor for The Evil of the Daleks. Hello, Rob. Hello, Gavin. I'm aware that your availability for recording tonight is precarious, to say the least, Rob. And I think we are likely to suddenly lose you, but hopefully not too soon. So thank you for joining us amidst your uh, relatively new family commitments. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. And thanks also to you, faithful listener, for joining us for our second episode. We had lots of lovely feedback about our first episode, uh, mainly about biscuits. Uh, I'm afraid there is no stupid quiz this week, as we're just too jam-packed with facts. This episode, even more so than last time, our topics of conversation are very visual, so you may like to know that there is an enhanced version of this podcast on YouTube with a slideshow of all the relevant telesnaps, shots from the animation, and photos that we'll be discussing along the way. You'll find that under our podcasts playlist on YouTube. It's not one of the main videos. So, John, you've now seen Evil. How did you find the new animated version? It was a real new experience, and I thought it was great. Really enjoyed it. Reese, I saw your name in the credits. Have you managed to see Evil yet? I actually haven't. Um, I'm frustratedly awaiting my delivery, so I'm very jealous of you all for having already seen it. But I'm very much looking forward to it, not only because I've been hearing nothing but praise for the animation, but also I've been really hoping for more of Rob's brilliant 3D Daleks ever since the Power of the Daleks animation. One of the many nice things about the Power animation was that it seemed to result in a huge upsurge in appreciation for the story, which before then had seemed to be the slightly underappreciated sibling of evil. So it'd be interesting to see what effect being animated has for the popularity of evil. Will it regain its crown as the uh, most favoured Troughton era Dalek story. Power seems like such a long time ago. Only a few years really, but even back then, it was amazing just to get the call just to provide the 3D Daleks based on the, the stuff that I'd done on YouTube, which was test clips for evil, test clip for power. And now it, it's bizarre that that was about 13 years ago or something where those test clips were done. It's kind of, this is a bit like closure. Mm. Um Emotional closure. Uh, <laughs> and now I can sleep at night. <laughs> Actually, no, I can't. I've got a, I've got a newborn. What am I on about? <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope she doesn't make an appearance too soon tonight. <laughs> well, actually, she, um, Izzy, my, my, my daughter, I did actually manage to sneak her into the antique shop. Oh, brilliant. Um, just on a, on a, well, just a little, uh, a little painting on a, on top of a, <laughs> table oh lovely that was quite a last last minute thing to put in brilliant and if anyone complains about that easter egg <laughs> they have a heart of stone <laughs> i'm gonna write a letter right now 
Why, why, why? There will be. There will be. You'd have thought that I'd have learned from Easter eggs from the faceless ones, where pretty much on the faceless ones it was a case of I started with one and I got a bit of a hit from it. And I thought, well, this this, this is quite fun to do. How many more can I do? And it was, it was quite bizarre because I remember on one of them doing the poster of two different masters and people were up in arms about it and saying, oh, this is the BBC forcing their agenda on us. And, and there's me on Twitter going, well, this is this is me on New Year's Day watching the episode go out and thinking, well, this, is, this could be quite fun. I'll power up the PC and I'll drop a poster in. So... I love the fact that, that people think there's a lot of premeditated thought that goes into the Easter eggs, but really it's a spur of the moment. Oh, that would work there. I'll do that. Yeah, yeah it was a bit of fun. And I, I did sneak a few other um, on the coffee machine in the Tricolor Cafe. It's got Lamb and Company in honour of our friend Anthony Lamb, who may appear on the podcast at some point. I'm reliably informed by Rob that um, the cans of coffee beans I put my name on in the Tricolor Cafe, which I have no memory of doing, <laughs> so I need to go back and look for it. <laughs> oh, the jukebox in the Tricolor Cafe has airs, as in Mark airs, for the musical connection on the front of it, but I think it's defocused so you can't quite see it. So there, there was quite a lot of hype about evil coming out. The worst kept secret ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and it seemed to be one that people were looking forward to more than many of the others, perhaps. Uh, at the back of my mind, I always thought that it would be quite a while before they would do evil. Uh, and I mean, going back to the faceless ones, I was I was really, really surprised that they opted for that one, because for me, the faceless ones didn't really seem like a like a story that would be pushed to the front of the queue to be done as a DVD. And I kind of thought that they would save things with Daleks to be big sellers and maybe further down the range. So even finishing the faceless ones, I didn't have a foggiest clue that evil was on the cards. And it was um, great that I got that call. And I got the heads up just finishing the last parts and submitting stuff. And they said, right, it wasn't even confirmed. It wasn't confirmed for, for months after faceless ones was out there. But I made a start. This is ridiculous, really. <laughs> this is why you should never really get a fan to work on them, because... I thought, oh, great, Evil of the Dark is happening. I know it's not been confirmed. I know it's not been greenlit, but it's happening. So I'm going to go away and start rebuilding various elements. So I didn't want to use the power model, uh, the Dalek model from power. Because, I mean, from looking at it time and time again, I kept thinking, well, there's things I can do better. I can add a better control for the eye to get more expressions out of them that way. So I just went completely back to scratch and just built a brand new model. Uh, and various other things like I started to do I, I already had a lot of elements lying around on the PC like the, the Emperor's throne room the Emperor, he needed rejigging a bit and some changes to, to try and make it more screen accurate but yeah so I was churning stuff out for about two months or something before it actually got green lit uh, even Maxible's lab <laughs> um, I started and got quite a lot of progress on with that, in fact that was something I got into some trouble for because um I was actually replying to Yorkshire T on Twitter, and in the very bottom left corner, you could see a file name saying Maxwell's mm. Lab, and that made it onto some forums. But this people only twigged on this months after we actually did start production, and then this was going around the forum saying, "Look, Rob's got a file called Maxwell's Lab. Uh, evil's happening." So that was the first. We've uh, all got a file called Maxwell's Lab. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who hasn't? Conspiracy theorists. I mean, the BBC policy of saying nothing. <laughs> Just <laughs> it do, it kind of helps and it doesn't. So I just had to kind of remain silent and let people explain it for themselves. 
and people were saying Rob's a fan. Rob's Rob's clearly been working on this for years. It's just a, a, a file name. Yeah, well, we all found out that that was a complete fabrication, and <laughs> I was indeed working on it. But then the heat came off me when um, one of the storyboard artists just posted an entire scene of work in progress stuff to YouTube, <laughs> not realizing yeah. that that it was still in production because it was in production for for that long. He thought, yeah. "Oh, this must be out now." <laughs> Obviously, we, we we know there's a number of people that work on these Oscar. Quite early on, there was talk that there was going to be an, a large amount of work needed for this, and it was a bit ludicrous that on previous projects I've done all the 3D modeling, I've done the the animation and the, the whole compositing. So uh, Anne Marie, the director, was quite keen on having other people on board to ease the workload, and I've worked with Gavin a few times before. Just it was just the first name that that popped in my head for doing some amazing modeling because I mean there was going to be a lot of stuff Victorian antiques pretty intricate stuff that, that I thought Gav would have been ideal for. And so I'd, I put I put Gavin and Marie in touch and Gavin was uh, sharp on board. It was the end of um, 2019 and, and I had the chat with Anne-Marie and it was all very confidential and hypothetical. But uh, I sent off some samples of old models that I'd done for the TARDIS Type 40 manual primarily as a sort of portfolio sample to Anne-Marie. And a few months later, she got back in touch. I think it was February 2020. And I remember I went for lunch with an old friend that I hadn't seen for a few years. And we sat outside and had lunch with this sort of impending feeling that this pandemic was approaching and that it might be our last chance to socialise for some time. And indeed it was. I remember that travelling down to the screen and of the faceless ones, there was all this talk about this potential new virus and some people were wearing masks. There was a lot of hand sanitizer going around. And then it barely seemed that I, was, I wasn't I was back that long and then we were in lockdown. Yeah, then Evil of the Daleks took over. All I would hear everywhere else is, uh, God, I'm so bored during lockdown. What have you been doing to keep yourself busy during lockdown? And I'm just completely oblivious to the notion that life had changed for everyone else because I was just fully focused, sat on the PC day and night, as Rob knows all too well. You weren't sat on Rob's PC, were you? I was, yes. It was nice and warm. I was like curled up like a cat. I made that a condition of the of my contract. <laughs> yeah. I needed I needed Gav twenty four seven. Just within arm's reach. <laughs> Did the pandemic actually sort of help things from the point of view of making it? Did you have more time to spend on it? I've been training for a pandemic since Power of the Daleks. Um, every one of these projects has worked exactly the same. There's no production meetup. There's no some days in an office. Everyone working on these are working remotely, apart from when we were doing the Macro Terror because the Sun and Moon studios who were doing the character animation, they were a company, so they would have been office-based. But for everything that I do, I'm, I just do it all from home in between life and a, a full-time day job. And... It, it's always been a horrible balance, but it's just it was just more of the same. For me, it, every one of these productions has worked exactly the same. And I, I didn't even really know that there was a pandemic. <laughs> uh, Rob was saying about the test clips he did for Evil a long time ago. I was looking over my old videos from 12 years ago, which include two or three little scene recreations from Evil of the Daleks. One of them's based specifically on a... John Cura telesnap of the Dalek weapons room scene where the Black Dalek saying discontinue working and those control panels were part of a bunch of assets that I had available and useful that I sent off to Rob and they went into episode six I think. Well this so. this was a thing that towards the end 
time was running out, and mm. I had, I mean, I ended up doing the majority of episode seven in a week. Um, <laughs> Just like which, they did at the time. <laughs> yeah. But for that scene, as, as silly as this is, not so much the telly snap, but I referenced Gav's video. <laughs> so it's it's kind of a pirate of a pirate. Yeah. Um, but because Gav had those models, I fired you an email late one night saying, have you still got this set? Mm. Um <laughs> The only slight problem with with me and Gav work is we're in different software, and if Gav textures something, by the time it gets to this end, the textures have just all fell off. So I have to just retexture. So I didn't get a chance to completely fully retexture it, and I, and really I wanted to have animated sequences where all the lights would be individual lights blinking and things like that. In the end, I settled. I had to settle for just all of them blinking at once, so it wasn't just a static image. Yeah, it was nice to kind of see Gav's test stuff from years ago just looping its way back around into a final production. Twelve years. I remember watching uh, Gav's clip and your clips on uh, on YouTube, Rob, and you know, thinking at the time, these are brilliant. But I wish we could see these in a broader context, <laughs> and now we can. Finally, got Rob to pull his finger out and finish it. I go through my old YouTube channel and I get really frustrated because I don't know if I would just lose interest in what I was doing and stuff because I would always make trailers for things. I would say, this is coming soon. This is something I'm working on. <laughs> and it just would never happen. And I did I did a few things for Evil of the Daleks where it was a trailer. It was like animated Evil of the Daleks coming soon. And <laughs> coming soon really meant 13 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's yeah. funny you should say that as well because, um, I mean, I, I did a fake trailer, as it were, for a non-existent Doctor Who story called The Sounds in the Dark, which was uh, like a sort of haunted house video with a plague doctor standing in I remember that. darkened doorways. And it was it was just kind of mess of like slightly spooky, cliched ideas. But one of the ideas was that there was this uh, gramophone record playing a song backwards uh, that sort of echoed. And I think the tagline in the video was, if you've, if you've heard the sound, it's already too late. Mm. But anyway, uh, that gramophone was... Again, one of the assets that got sent <laughs> over in a bundle of antiques. So that is in, so uh, in Waterfields antique, antique shop. Yeah, so again, my YouTube cool. uh, legacy coming around. That gramophone is also in Missy's TARDIS that I designed for the Type 40 manual. That crops up in there along with a, a lamp or two that also end up in Waterfields antique shop. When Victoria packs her stuff up and leaves her cell, she has a book and a mirror and uh, a hairbrush. And uh, the book is an old prop that I had handy, which came from the secondary TARDIS control room from the Type 40 manual. So although, sadly, you can't (laughs) see it on screen, the book that Victoria has is The Adventures of John Green. (laughs) Oh, really? Will there be a, a website tracking your reuse of your own props in 100 years' time? God, yeah. A virtual 6388 page. <laughs> God. Uh, leave that to somebody else. I don't think I'll be doing that. <laughs> um, I'm going to have to shoot. <laughs> I knew I was going to be interrupted. <laughs> Sorry, guys. That's all right. Don't worry, Rob. <laughs> don't apologize at all. We we knew it was on the cards. <sighs> Thank you so much for coming on. See you. Good luck. <laughs> Well, it was great to hear from Rob. Um, Sorry we had to lose him quite so quickly, but it does mean we will hear more from Reese and Gav about their work. And there is one bit I would like to cover with both of you, actually. There is a scene in Evil where we know absolutely nothing about it. There's no visuals for it at all. So I'd like to know how you approached those bits. 
But just before we come to that, I would like to know more about the props in the coffee bar and how you approached working out how to make that set. Well, first of all, there's no floor plan for this studio layout, which is true of a lot of Doctor Who from the 60s. So the starting point to try and block out the shape of that set is to look at the telesnaps. I think I'm right in saying there's a couple of telesnaps and there's a couple of off-air photos by Chris Thompson. Telesnaps is the brand name of John Cura's images, if people don't know that. So I started work by analysing all of those uh, off-air photos and trying to work out where the camera was pointing in relationship to the bar. One of the things that confounded me for a long time was that I hadn't appreciated that one wall, the left-hand wall of that set, is a mirror. So for quite a while, I was baffled as to how we were seeing certain views of certain walls, and people who I thought were at one end of the room were actually at the other. And then the very obvious point that it was just a reflection finally dawned on me, and then everything fell into place. It was actually also very useful that the walls and the countertop all have this uh, three-stripe pattern, obviously the tricolor pattern of red, white, and blue. So A, we knew what color it was, but B, it was a really useful um, scaling tool to work out how far away the, the walls were. And you could count the stripes to see how many stripes between like the mirror and the uh, picture, the giant portrait of the woman. Um, and putting together this set, it was one of the things that, that Reese helped me with really early on, bringing his excellent brain to the problem. Well, I don't think I was aware that it was for the Evil of the Daleks animation initially. No, it was a secret. Yeah, you were working on also at the same time an article with Simon Guerrier for Doctor Who magazine about the sets of the first episode of the Evil of the Daleks. So when you showed me your sort of work in progress renders... I thought they were for Doctor Who magazine and I chipped in with a couple of things like, oh, those chairs are actually these orange chairs in the telesnaps, that sort of thing. And I think you flippantly suggested, oh, what's the coffee machine then? Yeah. And then we, we spent a whole day trying to find that and the jukebox as well. We found that and that had some nice blue and red accents, which fits really well with the color scheme. Finding the correct coffee machine was so handy because that gave me the exact width of that prop on the countertop. So once you'd identified what coffee machine that was, I knew how many uh, spouts. I'm not a coffee drinker, so I don't know the technical vernacular. Uh, But I think I hadn't worked out if there was three or four of those. So knowing what model it was told me where that uh, countertop ended, which then told me how big a gap there was for Jamie to stand in where he's dancing with the uh, women in the tartan skirts. And so all of these little details on the accuracy of these props help the photogrammetry side of things in in scaling things as, as accurately as possible. That's the surprising thing about trying to model something is that you can look at a photograph, a telesnap of it, and you can think, yeah, that's a coffee bar. There's a coffee machine there. There's a table there. There's a chair. But when you've actually got to create that from scratch, you have to figure out all these dimensions and break down what you're seeing into its component parts. This is amazing to hear exactly how much goes into modeling these things for the screen. And how much did you have to actually do? How much was required of you? Or did you just want to do that? I mean, it certainly helped that I was doing the Doctor Who magazine feature concurrently because I was essentially putting twice as much thought into it as I probably would have done. But also, 
you know, from our YouTube series and the website, this stuff interests me. The forensics of all of this lost stuff, the fact there is no floor plan, the fact there are no set photos of the Tricolor Cafe. It's exciting to me to have the opportunity to do the research to rebuild this lost stuff. I'm probably more focused on it being accurate than it needs to be for the sake of animation. But then I think that all that feeds back into the appreciation by the fans. I think that knowing that that set layout for the Tricolor Cafe is very, very accurate is, I think, pleasing to a a vast percentage of the people who will watch it. And it ties in nicely to the Doctor Who magazine feature as well, because people can now go back and look at that set feature and see the breakdown of how those scenes were completed and then how that set was also represented in the animation. We also gave a similar level of attention to the Grimsdyke house layout. And we spent an awful lot of time trying to figure out, you know, what rooms were represented in different telesnaps and trying to figure out exactly what was going on in those sequences, because they're also quite poorly covered by the telesnaps. And again, there were no contemporary photos. You surprised me with a great piece of of lateral thinking, which seems quite obvious in retrospect, which was to look for other things that had been filmed at that time. Yeah, there were quite a lot of other productions shot there at the time. It had been a hospital or a sanatorium up until relatively recently before The Evil of the Daleks was filmed, but it became this really popular location for British television and film of that time. There was quite a famous film called um, It Happened Here that had quite a few scenes set in the house and there were horror films. There was one with um, Mark Eden, Virginia Wetherill and Boris Karloff. can't remember what that was called, but that was in colour and it had some scenes in the sort of main hallway so we were able to figure out what colour the wallpaper was. Colin Howard has uh, done a, a lovely rendition of that. One of the biggest mysteries on that landing section was the dreaded camel fight and the telesnaps cover the geography of how the fight starts because you can see that uh, it begins with Kemmel coming up the stairs from the front door of Grimsdyke reception area. That's actually changed slightly in the animation, so he's standing on the top landing and Jamie's looking up at him. And then you can see in the telesnaps where they're both standing when Kemmel gets the vase smashed on his head and we worked out where that table must have been and that Kemmel got thrown over the Mm. banister and smashed that table. I think it was thanks to the wallpaper again we were able to precisely locate one of the telesnaps because it had the wallpaper in the background the pattern the wallpaper yeah wasn't quite repeated perfectly. Yeah that's right. I I modelled that entire landing and the arches where Victoria is escorted through by the Daleks just below and to the right of the scene where Kemmel and Jamie fight So once I'd put all that together, I was able to do overhead renders and label each area of the 3D model where on screen each piece of the action takes place, like Kemmel comes up the stairs here, gets smashed on the head here, and I was able to align the telesnaps to the 3D model to show where the camera positions were for each telesnap. Uh, And I was able to supply them to Anne-Marie and the animation team so that they could understand the movement of the characters through that entire environment Uh, but the one thing that we couldn't quite crack is what on earth happens when jamie goes into the junk room 
and then Kemmel following him through the room, and then the telesnap after that, Kemmel is dangling off a rooftop. So how does Kemmel get from the interior to the exterior? Um, we don't know. People say things like, he fell through a, an open window. I recall you telling me that um, you tried emailing a couple of the original production team, but didn't have any luck. But have we tried asking any of the fans who watched the original broadcast? We have asked uh, David Howe and Fraser Hines and Jeremy Bentham, and uh, they all essentially say the same thing, is that they, they have this vague impression, but they're not sure. I can't remember who it was, but they said they definitely remembered Kemmel charging like a bull. Jamie's position is strange. We couldn't figure out what he was trying to do by the door. It looks as though he's anticipating someone coming through the door. Somebody suggested he was hiding from Kemmel. But Kemmel's coming from the wrong direction for him to be sort of hiding, waiting to trip him up when he comes through the door, because Kemmel would have seen him. It looks like he's sort of cautiously opening it, as if... He's opening it, not sure of what will be inside, or he's just closed it after seeing something shocking. Yeah, because I got the impression that he opened that door, saw danger on the other side, and closed it again. Mm. Because that's not the door that they come through from the landing, which is, I think, what people assume. Mm. There's a, looks like a sort of wicker basket with a rope nearby it. And we reasoned that the rope may be what Jamie slings around something around the door in order to trip Kemmel. And I think people assume that the next telesnap is Kemmel bursting into the junk room. And I think what we realised is that it's actually Kemmel going out into the blackness. Yeah. And I think the basket is under his foot in the second telesnap where you see the door open and him sort of going through it. We suggest that the house was either half-built or falling down, but either way that there was a door that opened into thin air, which I also suggested to the director, Anne-Marie Walsh, uh, was a little callback to the Dalek Invasion of Earth. Because David Whittaker, script editor Dalek Invasion of Earth, he wrote Evil of the Daleks, and I just nudged it in that direction, saying perhaps David Whittaker had this notion in his mind from his earlier Dalek serial work, that there was a door that opened to nowhere and resulted in somebody dangling out of that doorway. So that resulted in me building a door on the outside of the mansion wing that just opened into thin air with a roof sloping beneath it, and that's what Kemmel ends up dangling from. That rooftop must have been at Ealing rather than on location at Grimm's Dyke. Mm. But... There was even a question mark over whether or not the junk room seen in the telesnaps was definitely at Grimm's Dyke, or whether mm. there's brief possibility that that was mounted at Ealing as well. But I think I think we discovered that they brought props onto the location. Yeah, yeah. The problem we face if we if we decide that that door leads immediately out, in that Jamie would then be sending Camel straight to his tumbling doom, mm. and that's a difficult thing to reconcile with his character and the fact that he immediately tries to save him. Hmm. Is there no information in the script that covers this sort of aspect, this sort of detail? Well, there would be if it was a sequence shot in the studio, but because this was recorded on location, those details were not needed to be included in the camera script, which was purely to tell the cameramen and the vision mixer what to do in the studio recording. The filmed sequences were done 
ahead of time and there would have been a separate script for the film sequences with a shot breakdown and that script doesn't exist as far as we know right the camera scripts will sometimes give a brief description of the um, film insert but not enough to cover the intricate details so in the camera script for this particular episode says jamie appears under camera established corridor moonlight filters in jamie starts to move then stops Kemmel steps out of the shadows and faces Jamie. Then you have the episode captions, title overlaid. And then we just seem to get the end of a later point in the sequence. It says, Kemmel lowers Jamie to the first floor beneath the window. Jamie gets up, moves away. He is about to go on when below him a door opens and a shaft of light illuminates the corridor. Jamie goes back to investigate. And I'm not entirely sure what bit of action that would represent. Perhaps that's a hangover from the draft script, because that doesn't quite seem to correspond to the action as we know it. You'll never believe this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've just had an email uh, from. <laughs> I've just had an email from David Tilly. No way. I'm going to show my ignorance here. But um, who is David Tilly? David Tilly was the assistant floor manager on The Evil of the Daleks. And we weren't 100% sure if he was on uh, on location. No, well, according to the production guide, just specifies the studio episodes, because I suppose there's no floor on location. No. It's nature's floor. It's, it's lawn. It can't be managed by one individual. <laughs> no, God. <laughs> David Tilly is God. Um, I did work on Evil of the Daleks and was involved with the film sequences at Grimm's Dyke. <laughs> it was some time ago and my memory can be hazy. What is the mystery about filming that you're trying to solve? Let us hope I may be able to help solve your query. Best regards, David. <laughs> my hero. Um, wow. <laughs> I like this emerging tradition of sort of live scoops and research. I am going to very quickly dash off a reply. <laughs> when talking about the exterior of the house, as we've just come to, there is one particular amazing sweeping shot of the house as well. How did that come together? I mean, I, I should uh, stress at this point that my input into this process, I'm purely modelling. So for anything such as the mansion exterior, I provide the model which then goes to Colin Howard, who's a texture artist, and he then painstakingly paints the the bricks and, and everything on onto a texture map, which Rob then overlays onto my model. And in the case of that mansion shot that you're talking about, Rob then animates a complete sweep around the building. I'm doing what I love, which is analysing photographs, pulling resources together, working out sizes and distance and shapes and building 3D models and then just passing them off to someone else to worry about. In the case of the mansion, we're lucky in that the mansion still exists uh, and they have an excellent website which has 3D virtual tour so you can go around the rooms. That was extremely useful for modelling the, the landing and the Great Hall. But also John Kelly's range of photographs that he took of Grimm's Dyke were absolutely invaluable. They gave me every angle I needed for every bit of that building. 
So I actually used a satellite photo, I think it was Google Earth, to get the floor plan, the ground plan shape of the building as a whole. And I started with that. And then I used uh, John Kelly's photos to work out all of the, the intricate details of that front. There was then the question of where do we put Max Dibble's drawing room, which opens that scene in episode two of the Doctor with his uh, supposed hangover. And initially I'd put it on the uh, left-hand side facing the camera. And what you're actually looking at in the establishing shots of Grimm's Dyke and in, in the final animation is actually the, the rear of Grimm's Dyke. Uh, so it's got a very small back door. <laughs> Desperately trying not to say back passage. Um, so yeah, so we modelled the, the back of Grimm's Dyke and Anne-Marie conceived of this ambitious, magnificent, sweeping shot that goes all the way around the building and into the drawing room. So I supplied the model, and it was initially completely accurate to the Grimm's Dyke building. But Anne-Marie said really she wanted to establish it as if it was the, the front entrance to the building, and then move from the front to the French windows at the side. The thing is that we're, we're actually looking at the back of the building, and the real front door of Grimm's Dyke is never seen in Doctor Who. If I was to model the front, apart from all the extra work, it would just not be a recognisable view from the episode. So there was no logic to putting the real front of the building in the shot. So I had a little think about it. And I thought the best compromise was probably to just move the front door and put it on the back of the building. <laughs> so when you're actually looking at the building in that shot, the right-hand side is kind of sneakily borrowed from the front of the building and just um, shunted on so that we get this kind of merged a fictional version of Grimm's Dyke that accommodates both the things that she wanted in this shot. The the exterior of the house is obviously then in 3D. The interior of the house has rooms which are also 3D. Yeah, I modelled all of Maxtable's drawing room, the, the chairs and the cabinets and the screens and the doors, the jugs and the plates and everything in that scene that allows for camera moves such as going into the drawing room from that big sweeping shot around the outside of the mansion. There's, a, there's also a shot in the Great Hall, and I'm particularly pleased with that because I'd done the fireplace kind of as a placeholder, but I often wasn't 100% sure how much detail to put into any given model. Anne-Marie, I think, asked me to go back and revisit that fireplace and spend more time on it. And part of the reason for that is there's a telesnap that exists that shows a shot on location opens with an extreme close-up of the detail of the fireplace and it is a, a sculpted sort of a devilish character but it's a face so I opted to sculpt that properly in ZBrush. I modeled the rest of the pattern around the fireplace in greater detail uh, and just did a nicer job of that so it was really pleasing that there is a shot in the animation that reflects a little of what we understood of the footage that was taken on location at Grimm's Dyke, which is that the camera pulls out from this extreme close-up of the sculpted head on the fireplace. And then Rob's done this beautiful 3D shot moving up to the balcony where Victoria is, which is called the Minstrel Gallery, which has Victoria as a 2D object standing on that balcony. That's one of the other brilliant things that Rob's done is a seamless integration of the 2D and the 3D components. And one of the bits that works really well is the Doctor riding on the Daleks when they're playing trains. 
So the 2D character of the Doctor standing on the front of the Dalek as the 3D Dalek moves around, and, and Rob's done a brilliant job of, of marrying together the 2D and the 3D elements. It just works really, really nicely. So there were certain objects that you had plenty of reference material for, such as the fireplace, but were there any objects that you didn't have anything for? Actually, yeah, funnily enough, one of the things that I most enjoyed seeing on screen, it's a relatively trivial prop, but it's a big plot point. Um, So I was asked to design from scratch the little brain capsules for implanting the human factor and the Dalek factor. So I had a nice little time designing just a compact little canister with some fun, simple little bits of detail that were not beyond the skills of the uh, visual effects department to have put together in 1967. And I'm really pleased with my little brain capsule design. And uh, I was very happy to see how prominent it was throughout the, the final couple of episodes. Rob would often share with me whatever he was working on, whether it was a a Dalek being smashed to bits or uh, or the weapons room when he was putting together the that scene we were talking about earlier with a discontinue working. And funnily enough, I think that was when I reminded him that he needed to include the thin Dalek, which is known as the Wilkie Dalek, because I don't think it was going to make an appearance until I, I gave him a little nudge and said, make sure that that weird Dalek is in it. The thin Dalek, which is first thing evil and completely unique, um, it was made so that his skirt and shoulders were narrower than normal. Uh, the story goes that it was made specially to fit through the doors on location at Grimsdyke, but we used to be a bit sceptical about this theory. Isn't there basically enough photographic evidence, or so we thought, to prove that there were only two Daleks on location and it wasn't one of them? Yes, that all the sort of location photos only show two normal standard Daleks, and the paperwork for the uh, location manifest only mentions two Daleks. Yeah, it says it mm. says two mobile Daleks. Two mobile Daleks, but it does reference one mini Dalek. Mini Dalek. One mini Dalek, yeah. which appears to be the clue mm. um, from which uh, I got excited about about 18 months or so ago. Now I had to write a feature for one of Matt Doe's Who Dares products, which is a nice box set of Evil of the Daleks, ephemera, photos, what have you. And I wrote a short little bit for that on the Daleks in the show. Uh, and so I decided to relook at the Wilkie thing and see if we could nail it down once and for all. The mention of this mini Dalek was interesting. I wondered if it was something to do with pushing the Dalek into the fireplace. But the telesnaps seemed to show that that was a full-size normal Dalek that was done that. And, and, and the location paperwork even suggests that uh, smoke will be needed to emerge from one of the full-size Daleks as well. Uh, so I looked at the script, and, there, and the script does mention the mini Dalek um, in relation to the scene with Kemmel and Jamie in the Minstrel Gallery. So could it be the Dalek we're after, or, is, or was it the smashed Dalek on the floor? That would perhaps be the inference from the specification of the other props as two mobile Daleks suggests that this prop wasn't the mini Dalek, was not mobile. That would be the logical interpretation. Mm. It, it would, yeah, and, and certainly I'd, I'd already looked at that, so I was able to discount that fairly quickly. And with the help of Simon Garrier buying some images that he took of the Minstrel Gallery, which showed the entrance way to it, it was very, very narrow. They're sort of able to put sort of two and two together. Uh, and the mention of this mini Dalek 
the fact that it's in the scene on the Minstrel Gallery. We know the Minstrel Gallery has a very narrow entrance. All seems to tie up to suggest that it really, really was built to go through a narrow entranceway. Mm. Who is the Thin Dalek likely to have been built by? Because at this point, Shawcraft were falling out of favour with the production team, weren't they? Is there a possibility that they didn't build it? They were still supplying stuff to Evil, though, I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah, they were. Yeah, They were, and, and one of their Daleks, which they kept at the Shawcraft's workshop, was also in the production. Mm. So they had supplied their own Dalek, so it's not inconceivable that they built another one. There's no doubt that it is the product of the Shawcraft moulds, however butchered the skirt and shoulders are, to reduce their dimensions. Although it is interesting that the mention of the Mini Daleks doesn't say supplied by Shawcraft in the way that some other props in the past do specifically say supplied by Shawcraft. There's no mention of the destroyed Dalek Mm. at all, I don't think. Yeah. So whether we haven't got all the paperwork... One of the things that we noticed recently was that its gun and arm are not mounted properly in fully operational pivots. The gun and arm are static and are just shoved into the body of the prop with, you know, like a a half ball faking the ball joint. So it is much more of a dummy prop than we'd ever realised. It's also used when the Doctor pushes a Dalek off the canyon. It's the fake Omega Dalek. So that's, again, another stunt. Yes, very true. It puts me in mind of Dalek 7 built for the chase, and how that was made as a visual effects prop. And then it became a fully converted working studio prop. And I guess maybe it being thin was useful for getting along that thin, rocky ledge. You probably wouldn't have been able to get a full-sized prop rolling along on there. Hmm. Yeah. I do get the impression that the mini Dalek was created, you know, simple functioning for certain shots. And then they thought, well, like with Dalek 7, it's not that far from being a usable studio prop and will add to the ranks. John Kelly interviewed Timothy Coombe for the DVD commentary and uh, has asked him what the prop was for. And he has said it was because the stairway and the entry to the Minstrel Gallery was too small for a normal Dalek to get through. That seems pretty conclusive to me then. The only thing that's odd is them using this thin Dalek for scenes in studio when there were plenty of full-size Daleks available. Talking about Dalek bits taken to Grimm's Dyke, there is that shot from the Minstrel Gallery looking down into the main hall, which is on location, isn't it? After Jamie and Kemmel push the Dalek over the railing and it smashes, and um, those visual effects components scattered on the floor you were able to identify that they were actually recycled, I believe. I did, yeah. That that all came about because I was snapping the telesnaps off the old BBC Doctor Who site mm-hmm. um, while I still had the chance. And I just happened to sort of glance at that when I noticed a particular pattern of black damage on one of the slats and it just looked very, very familiar. And so I went back to power first, thinking that would be the obvious place that I'd seen it. And it matched up perfectly to the damaged Dalek in the final shot of Power of the Daleks, mm. the, the shoulder section. It's the very distinct diagonal pattern of black dots. And then from that, you can see that the whole thing is the same <laughs> prop. 
And that's the Dalek that's all sad and collapsed outside the TARDIS on Vulcan. That's the, that the, is the one, yeah. yeah. Um, obviously, a special shoulder section was made and put on the standard Dalek skirt section. They'd obviously retained it and used it later in that same season. I imagine it was probably a general policy to keep stuff that they anticipated might be useful. And obviously, the Daleks by that point had made multiple appearances. But, you know, there are instances of things early on being retained. Um, part of the model for the Dalek City in the first Dalek serial that was reused as a mountain in a model shot for Marco Polo. Mm. So obviously this was a standard practice where they'd sort of look at what had been produced and think, hold on, we can we can salvage this. I believe Ray Cusick said that there was someone in charge of that at the BBC props department. They would pilfer what might be reusable out of the outgoing mm. items. Because it was often marked on set plans, wasn't it? Retained for the rest of the serial, retained for future Yes, and um, a couple of set pieces from Fury from the Deep were reused in the wheel in space. On the design plans, it says reuse from existing component from serial RR, hmm. Fury from the Deep. So it was obviously a well-established practice. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was, that was a really fascinating chat, actually. Um, I've come to appreciate just how much work goes into these animations now, and you can really see the heart and soul that gets put into it. So congratulations to the three of you for all that work, and I think people are going to love the result. Although I put a lot into it, you know, I'm not on the animation team, I'm not texturing, I'm not in charge of the blocking or the directing or any of that, so I can fully appreciate all the hard work that everyone else has put in. And I thoroughly enjoyed watching The Evil of the Daleks animation honestly think it's the the best animation of the range so far and i do hope they continue yeah i only had very teensy weensy involvement compared to gav and certainly compared to rob but it's something i was thrilled to make a small contribution to i hope you got a tardis wiki page by now <laughs> i'll make one yeah i will all right okay that seems to wrap things up for this uh, particular episode uh, yeah um so it's goodbye from reese goodbye and it's goodbye from Gav. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from myself. Bye. 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 I didn't eat any biscuits this week. Where are my biscuits? <laughs>